This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. Here's an age old marketing truth, sex sells. But marketing sex or sexual wellness for that matter can be a tough subject to bear. Within today's oversaturated marketplace, marketers are fighting not just for attention on shelves and landing pages, but also for customers' eyeballs. But when you're marketing a taboo product, such as a sexual wellness cream, those challenges are magnified and building product awareness becomes your number one goal. This is a category where people don't even know yet that this is something that they're missing. There is no need gap you're filling as much as building an aspiration. There is a product here that's going to improve your sexual function. And this is something, it's a first of its kind. It's a breakthrough. That's Bulbul Huda, head of brand and chief marketing officer for Vela Bella Science, a CBD infused pleasure serum designed to act as Viagra for women. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Huda joined me for a candid conversation on the challenges she faces as a marketer, marketing a product that consumers might want and need, but could be nervous to approach. She discussed the need to normalize products such as pleasure serums and how her company really goes about product awareness and their take on competitive e-commerce and how it's rapidly changing today. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Content Strategy at Mission.org. And today I have an incredible guest, Chief Marketing Officer, Brand Creator at Vela Biosciences, Bull Bull Huda. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Super, super stoked to have you. We were just chatting before we hopped on here. And I mean, look, it doesn't take anybody long to do a quick, you know, Google search on you to see that you have spent some time at some really cool brands, you know, Unilever, L'Oreal, right? You've worked with some pretty awesome brands at the highest level of retail and branding and marketing. And so I love that you've, you come from that background in that world and now kind of into, in, into Bella. I really want to start with kind of the context for you because when I see you, your background and I see a person like you, I want to know where did it start for you? Like, what was the beginning of marketing just that grabbed you? Was it a campaign when you were younger? Was it an author or a speaker or an entrepreneur? Like, what was it for you that grabbed you in terms of marketing was the thing that that made you come alive? Because clearly your background and your path have shown us that, but where did that start for you? It started very early, Jeremy, for me. I was always very uh, curious about brands. And as a little girl, I think my first 
my first experience with, you know, watching things Chanel. In fact, I had an uncle who lived in France and he brought me back uh, a Chanel bag, which was, you know, a huge luxury for a very young girl. And I started to understand, I loved how the logo looked. I loved the, the, you know, the interlock of the double C's. I loved how pristine black it was and, you know, how, and then I started to read about Chanel, Coco Chanel, Gabrielle, her life. Uh, there is a documentary I highly recommend to people who are excited about Chanel as me. It's called Coco Before Chanel. You know, just going through her life, who she was, how she became an iconic uh, fashion brand and set the tone right. It was very, very inspiring to me. And as I grew older, so I'm from India, in case you haven't noticed yet, I come from a, a very academically competitive you know, landscape that everybody's studying to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer. These are really the three big things that are charted out for us growing up. But, you know, given my background, given my family, I wanted to see, I wanted to not compete with them anymore. So, uh, so I started to say, all right, I'm not interested in sciences. Engineering is boring to me. I'm sorry for the engineers on the show here. I learned economics and then I studied business as my, uh, at my grad school. And I was very clear from the very beginning that it will ultimately culminate in a marketing career. And as my interview at L'Oreal, just sitting at the reception, you know, it was a very long wait. I, I, was, I was waiting for about 45 minutes. And then I watched the campaigns around me on the walls in the office. And I was like, yeah, I would totally kill to be here. This is what I want to do. So that's really how it began many, many, many years ago. <laughs> wow. So I noticed that you, yeah, senior brand manager was when you, you left L'Oreal. What are some of the things you're working on there? What are the things you're exposed to? What are some of the things that you're really taking away from that experience at L'Oreal from your role as a brand manager, from a marketing perspective and a leader? What are you taking from that experience? From L'Oreal, well, so L'Oreal was my starting point my home, like, you know, that's where it all began. So I learned from, you know, I learned how to build aspiration through brand language at L'Oreal. I learned very specifically that it's, you know, you have to believe in what at L'Oreal, you, you do that. You said, this is not a science. This is some, you know, this more than that to really deeply appreciate the consumer, but know how to build something that even they don't know they want. It's an innovation-led company. It's always first to market. And that's the ethos I, I take with me, that even if things are provocative, even if your focus group discussions are not giving you the right signals, believe in your gut. Uh, find that intuitive marketing is what I learned at L'Oreal. Mm. My first couple of brands there were uh, Maybelline New York, and then I've switched to skincare at Garnier. So uh, both were in the CPD, the consumer products division, which was, uh, you know, and they are divided by retail channels. So I was I started at uh, the CPD division at L'Oreal India. So tell me about intuitive marketing. What, is that, what does that mean for those who might not be super familiar with that? And can brands, maybe in other sectors, can they learn from that intuitive marketing? I think it is, you know, your own intuition as a marketer, because marketing is, and there are some very big CPG, successful CPG companies that truly try to make it super scientific where people, you know, it's, the, it's a well-oiled machinery. It's very uh, tightly guided by research and whatever research tells you to do is where you make your next moves. L'Oreal was different. And, you know, it's not that there was no research, there was plenty of research, but there still came a point of decision-making that, that needed 
a brand manager even to hone the leadership role and say, okay, what do I really feel? And to feel that obsessive curiosity about the consumer, I think that's really, you know, something that Laurie, nobody can do that as well as that company does, you know, truly, truly and understand who your consumer is. And to do that, they would rely less on classical forms of research, but more on just your observations, you know, just watching trends, watching it. Your inspiration could come from uh, watching a fashion show as much as watching a movie, reading a book uh, or traveling, uh, you know, and, and these things, these skills I acquired in my arsenal at L'Oreal as the five years I spent there. Mm. So can you talk about how, how that translates at, at Vela Bioscience now with your obsession with the customer and especially in the narrative these days with the way the world is. I mean, I talk to CMOs almost every day and it's interesting to hear how they're approaching the customer experience and how they're connecting with their customer and learning their customer and really being there in different in different ways, some traditional, some not. So I'm curious about how you're applying that into your current role now, because it seems like Vela Bioscience has a lot of momentum behind it. And clearly you're taking some of that from your L'Oreal days. Yeah, absolutely. And before that, though, I did spend another big chunk at uh, Unilever, which is a company I super duperly admire. And, you know, the, the skills I acquired from there were more grounded in informed decision making. You know, and I want to say reducing risk through research, truly backing your intuition, finding that validation through numbers. And I think it's a mix of both that I carry with me today, where Vela Bioscience is and how we, we got here. Because Vela Bioscience, understand my, my entire career has been in beauty. I've worked across various categories from makeup to skincare to fragrances. Then suddenly there is a sexual wellness company. So it's a, and you know, the, in marketing, we often say, don't change all at once, your geography, your company, your category. And in my case, when Bala Bioscience happened, uh, serendipitously, all three things changed. So it's a, it's, I, I moved from New York to Arizona. I changed my companies from a classic CPG beauty structure to a startup and a, a category that I was absolutely unfamiliar with. But I think that the skill set that I most value here is that the deep understanding of the consumer that I, that I learned at L'Oreal that, you know, and this is a category again, very similar to an innovation at L'Oreal where people don't even know yet that this is something that they're missing. There is no need gap you're filling as much as building an aspiration, you know, bettering your life. There is a product here that's going to improve your sexual function, for instance. And this is something, it's a first of its kind. It's a breakthrough to create that. I needed to have those skill sets in my arsenal that, you know, one, believing in my intuition, second, completely, deeply, obsessively knowing my consumer. And then the third bit, which is building a brand together, like piece by piece and all the avenues that it entails is something I truly learned at, at Unilever. Hmm. So bringing all of that good stuff together is where, you know, how Vela started. I love it. So, okay. So, so you've been, you've been at Vela Bioscience now you're at your, your first year, I think just over your first year there. Yeah. So, you know, the first, I, I always find it interesting to, to learn what were the first 90 days like for you in that role, right? Certainly there's a lot of stuff you have to look at in the short, mid, long-term you're entering into a segment that you don't know a lot about. You admittedly, you're like, I, this is a world I don't know a lot about. So you've got to do a lot of things here. You've got to certainly learn who she is and what she likes and how you're going to help her. 
your customer. And then also, of course, figure out what channels you're going to play in on the marketing side, what the team's going to look like. What are some of these things that you started to shape in your first 90 days at Vela Bioscience? So, you know, it's a great question, Jeremy. And, you know, because this being a startup, I did not have the luxury of a 90 day scenario. So it did not follow, you know, it wasn't, it, we needed to get there very quickly. We were also in parallel uh, in our seed to fundraising round. So my biggest, well, my, my path was very similar to my previous roles where, you know, first truly burying myself in consumer, meeting consumers. I may, I must have met around 270 Zoom interview. Wow. Yeah, I met a lot of women, a lot of women. Uh, and, you know, it's been my most enriching experience so far because th- this is a hard conversation. Women, even more so for women than men, to talk about unfulfillment in their sexual life. So, you know, there were long conversations. First one hour talking about, oh yeah, but you know, it's not for me. I'm great. This, and this was consistent, be it uh, somebody on the post, somebody in the middle, uh, any age, any life stage, because our product actually cuts across ages and life stages and it works across women as young as 18 and as old as 75. So that was really, truly enriching. But my biggest challenge was, to share with my founders and my investors the vision that I could see, but it would take a few months to bring it to life. So, you know, to how do you do that every week? Show them some bits that it's getting there because, you know, Rome was not built overnight. It's going to take, and this was probably the fastest a brand has been built into market. We did all of this in under 10 months, which I, I think is unprecedented. Wow. So the, the 90 days were exactly half and half into one, unlearning everything I know from a category perspective and learn the new category. And then in parallel, evoke that confidence in the founders and the investors that, you know, we know exactly what we are doing. Yeah. So how did you do that? (laughs) How did I do that? Well, yeah. How did you do that? Because that's amazing and super important because clearly you were successful at that because you're, look, I mean, the CMO role is the shortest tenure role amongst the C-suite. So anytime you have a CMO that's been in the role for a year or more, that person has done something, you know, they've done, they've moved the needle and they're doing well. So, you know, I love how you've explained that. And I'm just curious, high level, like just high level, how are you able to, you know, learn the new category, get the right data, present the right data to investors, you know, to present this vision of what you saw that they may not have seen. Yeah. And I think that's, that vision is really interesting for, for CMOs everywhere. Yeah. So I want to say it was a healthy mix of hard work, good luck, and uh, my, my communication skills. So good luck because sexual wellness category was already in a boom. And if anything, the pandemic accelerated that. So people were seeing that, you know, the millions of adults around the world in isolation were seeking deep connections. And, you know, a lot of times the connections were primal because sex is the one thing that hasn't changed in everything around them was changing. So I think there was the, the, the luck of the moment. I hate to say that, but pandemic did very well for sexual wellness brands, hard work. So my learning process was outside of my working hours, Jeremy. I don't recommend it. There were very many sleepless nights. There were very many all-nighters, but you know, given my academic background in economics, I was very used to like, you know, burning the midnight oil, if so to say. So looking at other brands and talking to the consumers were outside of office hours. My, my office hours were 
specifically focused around radical transparency and communication over communication, even if that's duplicative, because I know what I'm doing, but now I also have the task of constantly telling everybody what I'm doing so that to evoke that confidence, because there are, you know, we ended up raising $7 million, but they had to believe and see something to put the money on. So of course we had a scientific breakthrough, but to translate and communicate the, the vision on how we are going to position this brand that is going to be at the intersection of prestige wellness and sexual wellness. So it's going to be tailored to a prestige beauty and wellness consumer. Mm -hmm. How's the packaging going to look? The packaging was going to come from China. So even though in my head, I know exactly what I want, it was not going to be available before six months. So, you know, to find renderings, to find make a mock-up, comping, there was a, I want to say, what came in really handy are my very efficient assistant brand manager skill set of building comps, building things. And I guess my experience that led me to have the strategic outline on top of it that, okay, this is the communication I want to shower, but for this, I need to build these five things. Hmm. So there was a, there was a lot of work I want to say, but I, I, again, the benefit of the pandemic, I had nowhere else to be. So it was the laptop and me and all the amazing agency partners and vendors that I was collecting uh, uh, along the journey. Yeah. So obviously this is a product for women. Was this a product that you were like, hey, all your girlfriends, hey, I want you guys to all experience this. Give me your feedback. What, did you have some of that kind of internal kind of passing around your own personal circle of, of kind of colleagues and friends? Or did you kind of stick to more outside talking to you know other people about their experience with it? So- you know, I always test a few with like what I call the family and friends round. Yeah. But this product needed me because, you know, for the most part, the categories, like I said, it was a brand new category. And a lot of times your friends and family are very kind to you. So, it, right, right. you know, so we didn't, we didn't need as much as the family and friends round for this category because we had clinical data. The product is invented by a real world scientist. These are medical professionals. In fact, our main inventor is, is a person who studies led to the development of Viagra. So his background, he's a urologist, a surgeon. His background is in male sexual health. And then he dedicated the past three years of his life to really uh, understand, uh, you know, refocus to uh, understanding women. And the co-inventor is a person who's a genius. He's a PhD from MIT. Uh, he found a way to simplify the chemistry so that we can qualify as a clean product and, uh, uh, you know, one pot method of manufacturing it. So they did a lot because they both come from such science, science and science mindset. There was a lot of clinical testing that had already been done. So the one thing we did not need to prove is that this product works. You know, that was already a big check. Mm. But to tailor it into a proposition that will fly with people or not. So, of course, there was family and friends. And unfortunately for this category, it's a more awkward conversation with your friends as it is with people you don't know at all. Mm. So I, I found I recruited, like self-recruited from, you know, people, networks. It was a lot of agility and uh, startup mindset, I want to say, just find people. And then sure. on the top of that complexity of no human connection, because we're all sitting behind Zoom screens, because this was all happening right in the middle of the lockdown. So, right. you know, in some ways, I think it helped because talking to somebody on a, on a video call or an audio call about this category is probably easier in person. You know, once I committed to the category, it was not hard for me to ask the questions at all, but I could understand that not everybody is, uh, you know, going to be as uninhibited as I was. Sure, 
Sure. Wow. That's awesome. That's so interesting. So, so when it came time to, you know, thinking about what channels you were going to play in, right? Because I know if we fast forward a little bit, I saw recently that you've gotten into some retailers, correct? Yeah. So I'm curious about the early days of, were you already planning on the retail play? Yes. Is that, was that, was that from past experience or so did you start with kind of a direct a DTC play initially and then build retail into it? Or how did that, the initial like launch go from then till now you're in a bunch of really cool retailers? No. So the channel strategy always included a retail play, a D2C play, and then what we call a professional channel, which includes, so it's not, it's not per se prescription, but it's kind of, if I were to find an analogy, it would be similar to skincare, high-end skincare brands at dermatologist offices. So we'd want to place Vela at uh, a psychiatrist and a therapist and OBGYNs because, you know, again, the insight being a uh, barrier to women's orgasms are often not physiological. Uh, so they, they're going to professionals to seek help for their mental well-being or, you know, probably some other concern. We wanted to place the product there. So that, that is just starting now. But the retail play was always uh, in the mix. And specifically, so the idea was that we start out as 80-20, 80% of our revenue coming from retailers and 20 D2C. And then over the course of three years, you switch it. So it becomes 80% D2C and then 20% retail. Mm, so how did you get into retails? Was it pretty easy based on just relationships you had established? Because it seems like there's a lot of great D2C brands that maybe want to go retail and haven't been able to do it yet. Yeah. So it seems like you were able to do that pretty easily. Well, it's looking easy now. <laughs> That's for sure. It wasn't easy then. No. And again, so let's take a step back and see what was happening in, you know, prestige beauty detail uh, in the pandemic year. So two things were happening because of the pandemic. Uh, beauty was declining in especially color cosmetics. North America is a color cosmetics market. But second fall, what we are seeing is Gen Z becoming a critical purchasing group. And it's not just the millennials anymore. So younger kids have more money, they're buying stuff, but they are, are more leaning towards wellness categories, self-elevation, improvement. And this could range from health supplements to uh, you know, a Peloton bike to Lululemon versus the Gucci bag, different codes uh, and sexual wellness. And then the retailers were understanding that if they've, they're losing these customers, they want to quickly innovate and bring in new categories so that they can bring back these consumers. That said, there are still very many sexual wellness brands that are not yet at retail. I want to say then at in this point, it will be, uh, I humbly want to give ourselves a pat on our back that we made something that was undeniable. So it came from uh, the scientific prowess. It was a breakthrough. The product works clinically tested. And, you know, North America is a great place for indie brands because the barrier to entry is very low. You could start a brand and, you know, sell it to retailers, put it on a website, do D2C business. But there is a lot of merit and credibility that comes from having that scientific proof of performance and then backed by building a brand that totally immediately the retail buyer can see placed on their shelf uh, because, and, and this was again, very strategically thought through to destigmatize female pleasure. There is so much shame around the word orgasms, vagina, you know, these are taboo terms to the point that we can't advertise these terms on social media. We are not, we can't advertise sexual wellness brands on social media. 
So in order to destigmatize this, in order to normalize this, we wanted to build something that is that looks as prestige or as aspirational as their daily beauty ritual so that it can no longer be your dirty secret hidden in the nightstand, but proudly sitting next to your repertoire. So you you already have a big check that it works. And now it, there is also a brand that immediately is a department store play or a, a open cell play. And, and therefore it was a no brainer. The meetings were unanimously resounding support that yes, we want it. Uh, you know, let's see how quickly we can bring this on. Wow. So how, you know, you mentioned not being able to really advertise on social media, right? Yeah. And especially, I mean, that would obviously be a big, you know, a big play for you. How, what have you kind of done to navigate that when I'm sure there's creative things you can do to create content on social media. Um, but yeah, kind of what's your approach there? Because obviously there's some blatant things you're not able to do now. Yeah, no, that was definitely, uh, you know, a small setback uh, in learning. Every time we put an ad out, our website would get blocked. And then, you know, it was a whole process. You wait out seven days. So thankfully, we were beta testing this uh, two months before launch to see, you know, where where are we going to take this and what's going to happen? I think we've pivoted quite smartly. Uh, So we use social media, no doubt, both for organic community, but also for advertising. What we end up doing, Jeremy, is that we collect email signups through our ads on social media. So we now know that we are only talking to people who are genuinely interested And therefore, email marketing has, I can't say that it has completely replaced social media advertising, but it has arrested a lot of that loss for us. And it's amongst, it's a 30% of our revenue channel, uh, email marketing is. Wow. And then beyond that, well, Google, we use paid search a lot. So the ads on Google both display uh, shopping and search words. And then what we use social media for is advertising through uh, influencers. So uh, influencer strategy combined with email strategy has sort of helped us navigate a bit the restrictions on Facebook ad blocks. What about um, affiliate partnerships? Would that be a pretty a big opportunity for you? Yeah, so we do some affiliates for sure. Okay. We've recently partnered with Bonsai, which uh, is an affiliate with some of the key publications of uh, interest to us. We also partner through like, I want to say big ticket items like Allure Magazine, Women's Health. So we do like a 360 partnership where there will be a native article and a surround sound promotion around it. Okay. Uh, we've, we've done some dedicated newsletter sponsorships where, you know, we are going wherever our audience is. So emails like Girls Night In, Elephant Journal, mm-hmm. that play is also happening. But for the most part, And social media and blogs are very critical for us to constantly educate our customers. So, you know, it's a lot of things that play at at the same time. How about um, direct mail? Have you done any kind of traditional stuff in the direct mail world? Not quite, not as yet. Uh, Okay. But but I wouldn't say that we won't try it in the near future. We just haven't gotten around. It's only been five months of launch for us. Okay. And things have been, you know, our marketing calendars are tight. We are beating our D2C goals month on month. So... What we are trying now is currently working, but there's few things that we still need to test and learn. For instance, subscription boxes and direct mail. Uh, you know, so these are some of the pegs that will soon to come, uh, I want to say in quarter one. Mm, I love that. Super cool. So kind of in re- reflecting, you know, on the past year that you've been there, I just want you to reflect on, you know, what's, what's been the hard, what's been the most challenging day? 
And you know, what, what was that about? And then what's been the most amazing day in, in that year? Because I know there's been some awesome things you've accomplished, but if you just think of two, what's been a really tough day, really challenging day in, in the year? And then what's been a really awesome day in the past year that you've been there? So my awesome day and the tough day were consecutive. It started with oh, the, <laughs> it's okay. the best day of my time at Vela was the first ever day when Niall, the CEO, picked up the phone and rang me and said, you know, and we were connected through somebody and he said, well, I've heard about you. Uh, this is what we are doing. We have a scientific breakthrough. And, you know, to, to dramatize a little bit, there is a white lotion in a bottle and we want to make this into a consumer facing brand. I think that gave me the chills of excitement. I couldn't wait. I was like, so everything that I have learned so far in these past 15 years, now is the time to, you know, put this to some sort of execution and really create because, you know, in your corporate structure, even though you're doing some awesome things, there is not complete ownership. So this was the chance and it was the best day. I, I couldn't believe my luck that something like this came by. And like I said, I had a personal relocation. So I was looking for something truly challenging and exciting. But even in, in that imagination, I hadn't thought that something like this will come to me. And it did. The toughest day was the second day, because once I said yes and really excited, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it really, I was like, oh my God, this is, uh, I don't know how to start. I don't know how to, where to start. Uh, I don't know how will I convince these people that I know exactly what I'm doing because one had never been a one person army before. Like it had never happened. So, you know, the accountability, the responsibility, and also finding, like truly asking yourself that, have I bitten more than I could chew? Like what has happened? And it, that was, I want to say a week. It lasted, my tough day lasted about a week. And then my founder's incredible team, their absolutely undeterred confidence in me really fueled uh, that fire. And, uh, you know, and from there it was, it's, it's been a dream. It's been my dream job. Wow. That's awesome. So when you first started it kind of, you know, initially, did you go to kind of building a team or you kind of the first person in the marketing department was you? And did you, did you go about building a team quickly? Did you bring on agency partners before that? Kind of what, how, what's your view on building internally versus hiring externally since you come from some of the big brands that certainly work with agencies? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Um, I do come from, and I believe in uh, agency partnerships very strongly so my entire marketing team is external. Ah. Yeah. So we've got four different agencies. Uh, we've got somebody who looks after just PR and uh, influencer strategy. There is another agency that does uh, social media community management. Yet another who do the website and all the updates. So that's and digital marketing. So that's a separate leg. And the fourth one is a creative agency. Wow. The reason was one at the very beginning, like I said, we were also raising funds at the same time. And, you know, the team and the work streams were still evolving. Plus, given the place we were at, I needed experts and all hands on deck. So while I also truly believe in grooming and leading a team, and I've done that, there was just not that time in a startup structure to get to market as quickly as we did, the complexity of the pandemic. So with geography, should I hire somebody in and work with them virtually? I needed people who are ready to go and who are you know set in what they are doing. 
until now, and this was year one strategy from the very beginning. Now we are starting to look through the structure and you know how we build the internal team. But I deeply value all the four agency partnerships that I have. Mm, that's awesome. So I'm curious about just the intelligence that you need to see across four agencies, right? Because like if you have four agencies, they're obviously very, very important partnerships. You know, where do you go? Do you have, did you have something like a dashboard that you're able to see? Okay, these are the, well, this is what I'm the most important data or business intelligence across the four. Here's the creative, here's the social stuff. Do you have like something you're looking at or do you have to go to four different people four different times to learn and kind of get the information you need to report it to, you know, to change directions on it? it seems like that's a lot of relationships you have to kind of manage. Yeah, so I, it is a lot of relationships and which basically means a lot of emails in my inbox. But <laughs> no, I, I collate the information. I okay. I keep in very close contact with my agency partners. We are chatting every day and we meet at least once a week. Got it. Cool. And then from there, my uh, reporting back to whether it's for the investor newsletter or for my team, my team, I meet every week. And then for the investors, we try to report back once every quarter. But just in these five months, we've already reported three times. So I would synthesize that information and, you know, prioritize what is need Because a lot of the things are just important for me to know as metrics of success. It's not necessarily important indicator of business health. Right. So I can, you know, clean through that and truly give them the four bullet points they absolutely need to know. Mm. I've often, you know, noticed that companies that use CBD in their, in their product they market that feature of the product pretty heavily. Yeah. Can you talk about the decision at Vela to not like prominently feature that ingredient? So, well, that may be a little bit inaccurate. So it's not that we don't want to uh, prominently communicate the CBD. What we want to differentiate very categorically is that this is not yet another CBD brand. So we are not selling mm -hmm. CBD as a lifestyle choice that, you know, it's, because our CBD is a pure CBD isolate. So this is not going to give you any psychoactive effects that may or may not happen through broad spectrum or full spectrum CBD. I think our story is so much stronger because our product is science-backed. So what makes Vela famous is our proprietary technology. And CBD happens to be the active ingredient. It's a component of that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it, it's also very you know, lazy in my mind. So what happened is in 2018, when the farm bill passed and CBD became legal in all 50 states, this is very common. An ingredient comes to market and then everybody is just jumping on it. And drinks and lotions and potions and yeah. The, how do you differentiate? And there is so much clutter out there, Jeremy, that, you know, there, nobody's talking about dosing. If you pick any, and I can say any CBD product, it's unlikely that you will find, oh, you need to have 20 mg four times and they are not talking about that. So it's at emotive level. It is not truly an active ingredient. Whereas in Vela, we are so committed to our precision and science that every dose of Vela, whether it is in a jar or in a single use sachet is perfectly dosed with 20 mg of the CBD isolate. Now it's nano, nano encapsulated in our proprietary technology and therefore the product works. Mm, so I love that. Yeah, we will never shy away from saying that this is a CBD product, but sure. but that's not what makes it special. Yeah, I, I love that. I think I think that's really smart. I think it could I think you could you could present all of this information from either hand and say, oh look, CBD is huge, 2018 farm bill passed let's paint the walls with CBD. It's the miracle. Let's talk about it versus, Hey, wait a second. What if we were to 
you know, acknowledge that, but also separate ourselves from that kind of, you know, umbrella of all of these brands. And I think that's a, that's a really smart play um, because I think it also poises you for longevity, you know, on the, on the shelf for years. And of course, certainly direct to consumer as well, but I just love that play. And I think that would have been one that you could have gone either, you could have gone either way with that. And I, lo- I think that's really smart. Also, it leaves room. So, you know, our company's mission is to sexually empower every woman. And as we start to develop our portfolio tomorrow, another product that we are innovating may or may not use CBD as the core ingredient. So we don't want this company to be known for the ingredient, but known for its pure science and service of sexual empowerment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, I was curious about Will there be additional lines of products as well coming down, down the, it seems like there's a, an open space for that. So many. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm like, I'm like there, it seems like they're making a lot of waves with this one. And there's no doubt that they're, I mean, why not add additional things? Um, especially with the, the success you've had so far. So that's exceptional. How about just the, the challenges in marketing a product that, you know, has some ingredients that can be cha- cannabis and other things that can be more challenging. Well, how do you kind of look at that? And what are some of the challenges related to marketing a product like that? Well, the challenges, thankfully, after the bill of 2018 are still fewer, but the, the two immediate ones, and they're easy to navigate. The two immediate ones that come to my mind are one, uh, you know, using Shopify or Magento as your uh, website uh, management tool. They would, their payment processors do not uh, allow CBD products. So what you do need is an additional app and we use Pinwheel to navigate that. The second thing is in paid search. So if the product has CBD, the ads cannot be targeted to people under 18 years of age, which for us was not a problem because given the age of consent is 18, we were anyway going to market our product to 18 and over. The other challenge, actually, there is a third of shipping the product internationally. So a lot of countries, you cannot ship CBD products, Canada even. So we, uh, unfortunately, we have so many excited consumers wanting to try Vela, but we can't, we will need to uh, set up a manufacturing plant in Canada. Wow. Yeah. So I want to say these are the three challenges that I can immediately think of. And so you had to do that? You had to literally set up manufacturing in all these places? We are looking to do that, yes. So we are finding contract manufacturers in Mexico, in Canada. So CBD is not illegal there, but shipping CBD is not permitted. Hmm. So as long as the plant is in the country of of business, it's not a problem. Hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. So I'm curious about your view on just using using your data to the best of your ability, right? I know a lot of marketers really try to get a better understanding of how to use it the best way. And I'm always curious about marketing leaders like yourself. Like, how do you think marketers should be utilizing their data sets? And what strategies do you use when it comes to looking at the stories your data is telling you? I think data is critical because that's the only measurable metric of success. Now, I would say, though, cautiously speaking, I would use it to tell my story, but the data is not my story. So, you know, if I want to position how we are performing on social media, I would love to sprinkle it with data that so that, you know, this is now not debatable anymore. When I tell you that I put out this one post and it generated X number of impressions, X number of engagement, X number of comments, and everything that we do, we always first set up the KPIs. 
And every activation is then measured against those KPIs. And the KPIs come very simply from the goal. What is the goal? Is the goal brand awareness? So what does that mean? It means how many site traffic were you able to generate? Is the goal increasing followers on social media? Then what does that mean? Should we, you know, how should we go about it? So everything is first set out as KPIs and then measured. Likewise for paid advertising. So for Google, we set out a a return on advertising spend, ROAS, uh, KPIs at the beginning of every month. And that takes into account uh, competitors' performances, the landscape itself, if there are any advertising regulations that have changed and so on and so forth. At the end of every month, we will evaluate, okay, where are we versus our goal? Exactly like that for email marketing, that, you know, we are hoping that we set out this promo. What are we hoping to achieve? That it should give me a lift of 23%, 24%. And where do I come up with these KPIs from? It's a mix of past experience, obsessively reading marketing literature that is available out there. So, you know, you just have to, I subscribe to every database out there to really see what's happening. And that informs my KPIs and measures of success. Hmm. And ultimately, knowing that where are we going with this? At the end of 12 months, what is the goal? What, and the goal is only one. It's the revenue goal. It's the business goal. That's it. So everything that we do is obsessively laddering up to that business goal. Mm-hmm. What trends are you seeing kind of unfold in the space that you're in? Because to me, you're, you know, you, you're looking down this D2C lane. You're looking into this retail lane, which is really interesting given the way the world is now and how people interact with retail versus this D2C play. So, you know, as you kind of have these different perspectives and views, what do you see is like is trending is kind of coming next or what are the things you're thinking about utilizing? I know we talk a lot about AI sometimes and machine learning and some of these other things that are more innovative and, and how brands are utilizing these these things. What is your kind of your take and perspective on innovation within, you know, marketing trends, if you will, in the two areas that you see really clearly? I think from e-commerce perspective, social commerce is going to be the future. So, and we are already seeing platforms like Flip come up and, you know, and it's all borrowing from the success models from China. We already have it here from Amazon TV, but, you know, Amazon is a more mass market play. And for prestige brands, I think it's a matter of time when more brands like Flip come into play and start to look at video commerce and social commerce as uh, as a key trend. From a D2C perspective, I think subscriptions. Subscription is not new, but for sexual wellness, yes. I do believe that once people get used to this elevated wellness that they have now found, because today the women especially are seeking out products and tools to fulfill their sexual function. And, and you know, finding that, finding that equity of pleasure. So with that happening, I feel it's going to follow the trends of skincare and health supplements and find itself succeed in a subscription-based model where you can choose once every six months or once every three months or once every 90 days or once every 30 days, I'm going to get replenish my uh, Vela serum, hopefully. Yeah. Mm. I think the, yeah, the subscription play is going to be huge. What a, I mean, what a, what a massive opportunity for you. Um, I mean, it just looks like all the signs are pointing to a lot more success for, for you and the team there at Vela. Congratulations. I mean, it's really cool to kind of get an inside perspective on the elements that you put into this recipe in the early days, the decisions you made in the beginning to kind of see how you were able to really execute on a pretty cool vision. Uh, and that's awesome. So 
Bulbul, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it's been really, really exceptional to have you. And you're someone that I want to remember we go back to, to be like, let's figure out where where this brand is at now, because we've just seen companies absolutely explode. So congrats. Thanks for being here. Um, loved having you on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. The pleasure was mine and this pun is intended. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love it. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. We have Bulbul Huda, CMO for Vela Biosciences in the house. Hot seat question number one. Bulbul, if you weren't in marketing, what would you be doing? I would be wanting to get into marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. You're not getting out of the marketing one, folks. She's going to be doing marketing. Okay. Number two, you've spent a good bit of time in Mumbai. Uh, What is your favorite dish to eat there? So it's the street food. They're all clubbed under snacks. It's not a meal. Uh, Very spicy. Okay. And I want to say, I'm happy to tell you what it is. I love Belpuri. So it's B-H-E-L, Belpuri. Okay. Belpuri. I like it. Awesome. What is your favorite part about working in this industry you're in now, in this kind of skincare, beauty, sexual wellness industry? My favorite part is, Jeremy, that it's it's actually going to be, it's already been 15 years and not for a single day I've felt I've worked a day in my life. That's my favorite part. I'm obsessed with the categories I work with, the consumer I'm talking to, and the brands I'm building. Love it. Least favorite marketing buzzword? So many. <laughs> That's what I hear a lot. It's funny. What is the promotional plan? Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Okay. I love it. Okay. Last question. Um, what is your best advice for a first time CMO and head of brand creative? My first and my only advice is start thinking of everybody around you just as people, not as a commodity, not as a customer, because when you lean into things just as a person, building products for another people who are probably just like you or somebody you know, uh, you're going to be more credible and authentic. So simplify it. This is not rocket science. This is not life-saving. We don't, we don't, you know, I used to say this for the longest time when I worked in beauty, that please don't make it a life and death matter. It's only a red lipstick, relax. So, you know, just take it easy, breathe through it and obsess with people. I love it. I love it. Bobo, thank you so much for being on the show. Everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. Check out Vela Bioscience. This company is dedicated to women's sexual empowerment. Um, it's got this amazing product for women called the Women's Pleasure Serum, created by the minds behind Cialis and Viagra. So we're talking about when she talks about the IP and the technology and what this is really doing for women all over the world. Phenomenal stuff. So congrats again, Bulbul. Thanks so much. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver 
relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.